Memorial Health System is proud to feature our doctors and staff in this important podcast series. It's Memorial Health Radio. Here's Melanie Cole. Nobody wants to think about cancer, but when you think of all of the cancers that you could get, esophageal cancer would seem to be one of the worst because of all of the ways that it affects your quality of life. We're talking today with Dr. Warner Wang. He's a general surgeon with Marietta Memorial Hospital Department of General Surgery. Dr. Wang, tell us a little bit about esophageal cancer. As I said in the intro, it's something I myself worry about. And I worry about Barrett's and the and all of the repercussions from esophageal cancer. Tell us the prevalence of it and how does it affect the daily health of individuals? Thank you, Melanie. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, this subject is actually very dear to my heart as my own grandfather passed away from esophageal cancer nearly 20 years ago. So for esophageal cancer, this is a cancer that is not in not high in the cancer list as we're aware of in the United States. The top cancers tend to be the colon, the breast cancers, and the lung cancers. However, esophageal cancer can be considered to be one of the deadliest cancers. Um, in terms of prevalence, we kind of split uh, the cancers, uh, esophageal cancers that develop in the United States and globally. Globally, there's actually uh, quite a large number. Uh, we estimate that there's going to be a, uh, about 570,000 new cases of esophageal cancer and almost 510,000 esophageal cancer-related deaths globally. And in the Middle Eastern countries to the Far Eastern countries, uh, there is this esophageal cancer belt where esophageal cancer is quite commonly fell, found. However, in the United States, we're looking at probably about 17,000 new cases of esophageal cancer diagnosed with 16,000 cases contributing to uh, cancer-related deaths. So you could see that the number is not as high in the United States, but it's still a very deadly cancer. So why are there esophageal cancer belts? Why are there spots where it's more prevalent than it is here in the States? The, to answer that question, we actually have to consider that esophageal cancer is actually split into two different types. There's the squamous cell carcinoma, which tends to happen more in the Middle East and the Far East countries. And these are usually thought to be due to poor nutritional status, um, they consume lower uh, quantities of fresh fruit and vegetables. And also, it has been shown that drinking very hot beverages will actually increase the risk of uh, squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. And over 90% of the squamous cell cancer uh, of the esophagus is found in that region. Uh, however, in the United States, we don't see that so much. And primarily in the westernized countries, Smoking and alcohol tends to contribute to 90% of the total cases of squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus in the westernized countries. So that's one arm of esophageal cancer. The other arm is actually something that is now uh, heavily focused on, and that's the adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. We are actually seeing a very... Uh, 
aggressive rise in the number of new cases of adenocarcinoma of the esophagus in the Western countries. And some of the risk factors that we do know about uh, this type of cancer include um, esophageal reflux, which uh, can lead into Barrett's esophagus, considered to be a precancerous state for adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. And risks that contribute to increased reflux, increased Barrett's, include overweight and obesity, and uh, also, um, there is uh, there are also um, uh, uh, risks surrounding the tobacco smoking and alcohol as well. Well, first, let's delve a little bit into GERD. As you mentioned, if someone suffers from gastroesophageal reflux disease, that could put them at risk for Barrett's, which could then put them at risk for esophageal cancer. Is GERD considered then a precursor for cancer? Can heartburn cause esophageal cancer? And please explain to the listeners what Barrett's esophagus is. Heartburn can contribute to esophageal cancer, and we are actually seeing that here in the United States as the number of new cases of heartburn is rapidly increasing over the past decades. So the Barrett's esophagus is what we would consider as a uh, precancer, very much kind of like colon polyps is for colon cancer. Uh, it's not quite cancer yet, but if Barrett's is left uncontrolled with certain risk factors, it certainly has the uh, ability to transform into cancer. So Barrett's cannot happen without reflux. We have uh, uh, long known that. And when we look back onto the risk factors for Barrett's and the risk factors for um, esophageal cancer, specifically adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, we, we, we found that long-standing reflux, especially those patients with reflux uh, that's uh, been over 20 years or with severe symptoms of reflux, have increased risk for uh, Barrett's and cancer. Those patients with um, weekly symptoms, those individuals with daily symptoms, you could have uh, an increase in uh, your odds up to five to seven times of uh, adenocarcinoma of the uh, esophagus in untreated uh, reflux. And then for those patients who develop Barrett's, the risk for cancer is at least 30 times greater than the general population. Wow, those are incredible statistics. And as I said in my intro, for some reason, this is, I do a lot of these shows, Dr. Wang, and this is one of the sort of scarier cancers that I hear about because so many people suffer from GERD and maybe don't treat their reflux. Are there some symptoms? And while you're discussing that, discuss please for us diagnosis. With colonoscopy, as you mentioned, polyps, we get our well colonoscopy. It, it's considered a preventive care. They take the polyps and boom, they're gone. But with esophageal cancer, can you use endoscopy in the same way that you use colonoscopy? Do you see it in the future being a screening tool as opposed to a diagnostic tool? Tell us a little bit about symptoms and diagnosis. Okay. 
in terms of symptoms, esophageal cancer symptoms, uh, they usually do not surface until the cancer is in a more advanced stage. So most of the symptoms have to do with the cancer slowly growing in the esophagus and at some point grow large enough to cause obstruction. So some people, uh, some, uh, people with esophageal cancer can have swallowing difficulties, uh, they can have weight loss, they can have painful swallowing. And as the cancer grows, it can uh, lead to low red blood cell count or anemia. And as it grows bigger, it could certainly uh, bleed as well. And uh, people may find that they have a hard time controlling their saliva because it's pulling, it's not going through the esophagus, and it's coming back up. And then uh, some people may find that they have nonstop coughing or maybe even recurrent pneumonias because the cancer is working its way into the uh, airway, into the lungs, into the uh, windpipes, if you will. So esophageal cancer symptoms usually doesn't surface until it's later. And most of the time when we discover esophageal cancer, it's because the patient is uh, having some maybe uncontrolled reflux or maybe they're starting to notice that some food is sticking. And when we go down in there uh, into the esophagus with uh, endoscopy or a camera to take a look, we find that there is a mass inside the esophagus. Um, in, with regards to screening, this is an area of uh, focus for research right now. Even in 2019, we do not have a clear consensus between all of the specialty uh, medical societies in terms of exactly which type of patients, uh, what patient characteristics we need to be aware of and focus on to do uh, Barrett screening or you know, and uh, esophageal cancer screening. For example, some societies will say that long-standing reflux, age greater than 50, maybe uh, the male sex, maybe uh, Caucasian ethnicity uh, might be some factors that would consider us to screen, whereas some other societies would consider more heavily central obesity where um, uh, most of the weight is carried in the middle part of the body uh, cigarette smoking. Um, so we do not have a clear consensus in 2019. There are various societies, including a newly founded uh, society called the American Forga Society. Uh, they are tackling this uh, screening question. We have groups of surgeons, gastroenterologists working together to answer this specific question. But for right now, what our current recommendations are, if you have long-standing heartburn, you're taking a pill, maybe the purple pill, um, and the symptoms are not being controlled, it would be wise to talk to your primary care doctor to see if you have any of the risk factors that would warrant us to uh, do an endoscopy to survey this area, see if there is Barrett's esophagus. Wow, what an interesting topic that we're discussing today, Dr. Wang. So tell us about some of the latest treatments and due to the sensitivity of this type of cancer and the intricate nature of head and neck cancers in general. Tell us a little bit about 
treatment options available and how it affects the daily lives and the quality of life of the individual? Uh, certainly. Um, when it comes to esophageal cancer, the treatment methods really depend on uh, what the uh, how advanced the cancer is. For uh, cancer that is in the early stages, uh, frequently we think about uh, surgery as an option to eliminate the cancer. If the cancer has not spread outside of the esophagus, surgery can potentially be curative. Uh, there are other uh, treatment methods such as radiation therapy. Radiation therapy could be used as the only therapy. It could be used as uh, uh, adjunct therapy to, uh, in, in addition to chemotherapy and or surgery, either before surgery, after surgery, and certainly radiation has been used to palliate uh, symptoms of esophageal cancer when the tumor gets too big and maybe the cancer is not resectable. Radiation therapy can shrink the tumor as well. The current uh, developments in treatment tend to focus more on medical therapy. We've long had chemotherapy. Those are pretty well defined. There are some um, uh, stable drugs uh, that uh, we consider as first-line therapy for esophageal cancer, but newer drugs are coming out on a regular basis, too, as uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, invest more and more into research. What is probably the most exciting uh, part about medical therapy for cancer is that we are now finally starting to uh, find options in targeting specific cancer, specific genes, specific proteins to treat various type of cancers. And these type of targeted uh, therapy has the potential of targeting cancer but leaving the normal body's cells alone and uh, therefore perhaps uh, be able to be more effective and less toxic to the body. And that's where most of the excitement in uh, cancer research in general, but also esophageal cancer, lie. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the other focus is how do we develop uh, a robust screening program to catch Barrett's early, catch Barrett's before it starts to transform to cancer, because we do actually have a lot of new treatment techniques for Barrett's esophagus. Well, so that would be something for us to discuss as that moves along, Dr. Wang, and I'd love for you to come back on and tell us as that discussion continues if this does become a screening for esophageal cancer and something that is considered regular for people to do. And then you can come on and tell us all about Barrett's and some of the screening and treatment tools that you do have for that. Do you have any last words for us about prevention of esophageal cancer? Tell us a little bit. Um, I think, you know, with esophageal cancer being um, such a, potentially being such a deadly disease, um, currently, in terms of trying to prevent this deadly cancer from developing, getting any problems with um, uh, trouble swallowing, heartburn that's not controlled, getting that evaluated, looked at earlier is always helpful. 
And if we're able to detect the changes early, we can use some of the uh, more recently developed treatment techniques to eliminate Barrett's to control the reflux. We certainly have medicine that can eliminate acid from the uh, reflux, but we also have the ability to surgically control heartburn and reflux so that patients are no longer refluxing, no longer experiencing the heartburn that goes along with reflux. And that also uh, leads to a better quality of life as well. So um, I think I think at the end of the day, the best message I can provide is if you have uh, some uncontrolled symptoms or some unusual symptoms, talk to your doctor, get it checked out early so that we can run the necessary uh, diagnostic testing early to detect what the problem is. Thank you so much for that great information, Dr. Wang, and for sharing your expertise in this matter. And as you say, really keeping on top of our own health, being our own best health advocate when we notice some of the symptoms you've described is really the best thing we can do for ourselves. Thank you again for joining us. You're listening to Memorial Health Radio with Memorial Health System. For more information, please visit mhsystem.org. That's mhsystem.org. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for tuning in.